been disappointed? Ever had something that just didn't turn out the way you wanted it to turn out? In 1858, Abraham Lincoln did not win his race for the U.S. Senate. A friend was asking him later how he felt about the situation, and Lincoln said this, Like the boy who stubbed his toe, I am too big to cry, and I'm too badly hurt to laugh. Sometimes we don't know what to do when we are disappointed. For our teachers that are going to begin teaching again tomorrow after a long holiday weekend, I offer this encouragement that I saw on a t-shirt recently. I am disappointment in your grammar. Yeah, that's an apostrophe, Y-O-U-R-E. You know, disappointment happens in so many shapes and so many sizes. It can come at the doctor's office, it can come at school, it can come at home, it can come listening to the news or watching the news. Disappointment surrounds us. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes we don't know how to handle disappointment. We don't know what to do with it. That seems to be exactly what was happening to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was was in a fix. His country was falling apart. It was full of sin and injustice and wickedness and violence and selfishness. And he was pleading to God, please God help, please God help. And God responded to his prayers and said, I am going to help. I'm sending a wicked nation. They're known as the Chaldeans and they're going to take over. You have to think that back it was thinking, hey, we have enough wicked people now. You know, I really didn't want you to send us any more. I was kind of hoping you'd wipe out the ones that are here for now. I I wanted you to to do something a little different. Habakkuk's thinking, God, I, I thought you would bring a time of peace and prosperity and comfort to our nation. Lord, I thought you would come and protect us and and care for us. It's really not on my radar that you would send more conflict, that you would cause us to fall apart when we're already falling. That's just a reminder to our hearts that God's ways are not our ways. And his ways are perfect. And we need to remember that. And and just for the sake of clarification, sometimes we don't believe that. I mean, really. We look at things that are happening and we're like, if God's behind this, his ways are not perfect. But we need to remember his ways are perfect. He never fails. He never messes up. And the reason it's so important for us to remember that is because if we don't, if we forget that, we will begin to wander down a very dangerous path. A path that will lead us to what we could call the ultimate sin. And that's what God is about to talk to Habakkuk about now. The sin that is above all other sins sins. And what sin is that? Let's find out. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. The Lord speaking to Habakkuk says, What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. The sin above all other sins is the sin of idolatry. And why is it the sin above all other sins? It's because it seeks to replace God. 
It seeks to take a, a person or a possession or a perspective or, or a philosophy and to make those things more important than God. Moses was speaking to the people, and one day he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. For ask now of the days that are past, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? No. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Anybody ever heard anything like that? People said no. And then he said this. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other. There's no other God. So, so how, how could you possibly replace him? That's, that's why idolatry is so dangerous. You can't replace him. There is no other. Maybe think about it this way. What if you were planning the perfect ideal spouse? Okay? You're just putting together the, the perfect husband, the perfect wife. What, what, what would you include? Would you include you know, maybe strong or, or beautiful or handsome, kind, fun to be around, wealthy? You know, maybe some other things like that. How many of you, when you were imagining your ideal spouse, would put, has complete control over my life? I've done a lot of weddings. I've never heard that in a vow. I promise to love, cherish, and make him the control of my life. Yeah. Why do you not hear that? Well, you don't hear that because when we put together an ideal spouse or an ideal parent or an ideal kid or an ideal boss or supervisor or teacher or pastor or politician, we never include in that list that that person would have control over us. Why? Because we don't like to be controlled. You may not know this, but every single one of us, in some way, shape, or form, we are control freaks. We all are. You may think that you're not. You may think, well, I never try to control anything. That's controlling being passive is being a control freak. Being aggressive is being a control freak. Being passive-aggressive is being a control freak. And whatever other terminology you want to use, we are all in some way control freaks. And whether we really want to admit it or not, sometimes we take that type of control freak attitude, and that's how we approach God. See, we approach God, and we want to create God in our image. We want God to be more like us. We want God to do things the way that we would do things. You know what we do? We use Bible verses to say, see, God would do it the way I would do it. We approach 
God the way we step into the line at the SNS cafeteria. You know? We leave the turnips, but we take the apple dumpling, right? We leave the stuff we hate, but we take the stuff we like. See, we like the idea of God protecting us. We like the idea of God preserving us. We like the idea of of God caring for us and, and loving us. We even like the idea of God saving us. But control? No. We don't like the idea of God controlling us. Which is interesting because an attitude like that is the exact opposite of Christianity. How do we know? This is what Jesus said, Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me and join Holland Avenue Baptist Church or join whatever church in the universe... If anyone wants to come after me, if they want to be a Christian, if they want to follow after me, that person must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The very call of the gospel is a call to deny yourself and give complete control to Jesus. That's the very nature of the gospel. Apostle Paul was writing to the folks at Corinth. He said, for the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have figured this out, that one has died for all. That those who live for him might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What interesting language. The love of Christ controls us. When, when we want to be control freaks, we have to take a step back and go, oh, I'm supposed to be controlled by the love of Christ. I'm supposed to be compelled by the love of Christ. No matter what's happening in my life, I'm supposed to be controlled and compelled by the love of Christ. The very nature of what it means to be a Christian is to cede control to the one who saved you. The very nature of what it means to be a Christian is to first and most follow after the one born in the manger. That is Christianity. So you can see why it would be a problem if you were trying to replace that. If you were trying to create something to take the place of God and His plan and His ways. God is God and there is no other. And idolatry in any form is counter-Christian. Someone once said that the opposite of Christianity is not atheism. The opposite of Christianity is idolatry. Because by its very nature, idolatry means that we're taking what we have, what we own, what we do, and we're doing whatever we want to with it. When the reality is if we've been saved and redeemed and rescued by Jesus, everything that we have is supposed to be used for the glory of God. What we have, what we own, what we're able to do, our attitudes, all of it is supposed to be used for the glory of God. And if we're not using it for the glory of God, there's only one alternative. Those things have become idols. People, places, things, philosophies, perspectives, possessions, opinions, attitudes, those things become idols if we don't use them to glorify God. Now, most of us would never dream of bowing down to a statue in our den that we made out in the woodshop. But 
Is there anything in your life that gets more worship than God? I mean, think about it. Why is it that we can go into an arena or a stadium to watch our favorite team or to listen to our favorite singer, our favorite band, and and what happens while we're sitting there waiting for everything to start? There's this sense of anticipation, this sense of wonder, this sense of excitement. We can't wait for the band to come out on stage and do their opening number. We can't wait for the team to come out on the field. There's, there's this excitement and this wonder. And yet, as professing Christians, whether we're on campus or watching online, where is that sense of anticipation, that sense of excitement, that sense of wonder when we worship God? Now, someone might say, well, preacher, that's on you, man. It's your job, buddy. That's what you're supposed to do, you know. You're supposed to play the music that I like. You're supposed to to scream and shout some real catchy phrases from the pulpit, some some things that make me feel good about my Judeo-Christian values. Hey, man, it's on you if I don't get excited. It's on you if I don't have wonder. Many years ago, when I was just a, a wee lad in the ministry, I was struggling with someone in leadership at our church. And I remember one day at lunch, we were sitting there talking, and I just said, you know what, I just can't worship anymore on Sunday mornings. All right, let me just hurt everyone's feelings right now for just a minute before I throw myself under the bus, okay? What are you using as an excuse for struggling with worship? Is it a mask? Is it social distancing? Is it music? Is it preaching? Is it dress? Is it the temperature in the room? Is it the comfort of the seat? Whatever it may be. What are you using that's hindering you from worship? What's what's your excuse that's keeping you from enjoying God? Well, anyway, that day at lunch, I said, you know, I just can't worship anymore. I just, this person is driving me up. They are such a distraction to me. I just can't worship. And my future mother-in-law said, No one is responsible for your worship but you. And after I pulled the knife out of my back, I thought, she's right. She's right. Listen, the the temperature, the, the music, the comfort of the seats, the cleanliness of the bathrooms, sure, all those things are important. But a true Christian should be able to worship God anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. That's that's the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. Now somebody else might say, well, (laughs) I don't like your illustration because when I come to church, I come to be reverent. I don't come to act like I would at a at a George Strait concert. I don't come to act like I would at a college football game. I I come to worship. Okay, fine. Let's let's switch gears and think of another approach to this. Another approach to idolatry. What do you do with your free time? Like when you're not at work, when you're not at school, what do you do with your free time? How do you spend your time and your energy and your money? What do you do with your life when you're not doing like the most important things that involve the most time in your life? What do you do? You do? Is your primary agenda still the glory of God? Are you still seeking to worship and and enjoy Jesus? 
Somebody put it this way. They said, imagine if you had Jesus come sit down and go over your schedule from this past week. Or maybe go over your schedule from the week ahead. What would he see? Would he see you leaning toward him or leaning toward someone else or something else? Where's the the leaning in your life? Where's, Where's the lean in who you are? Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 6. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. This is so good. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Let me hurt all our feelings again for a moment. How are you doing with the flood of 2020? How's your foundation been? When this year, the stream of this year, hit your life, were you solid gold Christian for March and April and then you were done? Or has your foundation continued to help you say, flood or no flood, mask or no mask, social distancing or no social distancing, election or no election, my hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of my life and nothing will knock my house down. This is a great year, a great time, a wonderful opportunity for us to say my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I had two people last week say, I really felt like I should amen, but I was scared to. Don't be afraid. Amen over fear, okay? It's fine. What about the church? What kind of foundation does the church have in 2020? Not just our church, but the church around the world. Where's the foundation of the church? You know what I love about the video we watched earlier about a Lottie Moon Christmas offering? Is that the gospel has never stopped. Now, I've said this before. This church has not been shut down for five seconds this year. Not at all. And if you think it has, you just don't understand the gospel. The gospel never stops. The work of the gospel never stops. It goes and it goes and it goes. Whether I'm involved or whether you're involved, it goes and it goes and it goes because the work of the gospel and the power of the gospel is Jesus. So what's the church built? Where's the church's foundation in these days? Dave Miller was writing about his dad who was a pastor. He said this, My dad spent most of his long ministry pastoring three churches. One of those churches no longer exists. Another hired an adulterous crook as pastor and nearly folded before another pastor came in and nursed it back to health. Another of those churches has dwindled gradually through the years. In other words, my now retired father cannot point to any of the churches that he pastored and say, this is the monument of my ministry. And then he goes on. No, there is no pile of brick and drywall my dad can point to as the monument of his success, but... There are people all over the world who were led to Christ and impacted by his ministry. He has made a difference, but the measure of that effect is not seen in organizations 
or institutions or buildings. The measure of ministry is lives changed by Jesus Christ. The measure of ministry is lives changed by Jesus Christ. You know, one of the most humbling things for all of us to remember is that no matter how important you were at your job, if you work somewhere for 30 years or 40 years, you know what happens 20 years after you're gone? Nobody knows who you are. Even if your name's on the building, they may not know who you are. And that's true whether you're a politician, a pastor, an accountant, a, a teacher, or anything else in the universe. That moment never happens with Jesus. Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows the story. And if they haven't heard it yet, somebody will tell them the story. The gospel never stops. The gospel never stops moving. So, so is the church building the foundation of her life on and on again on the foundation of Jesus? Or is the church just building things to enjoy and be proud of? In our families and in our lives, are we building our lives in such a way that we're helping people find and enjoy Jesus? Or are we just building church idols, career idols, family idols, house idols, car idols, whatever our idols may be, just building things that are on the foundation that when the flood comes and when the fire comes and when the wreck comes and when the pink slip comes, we're just going to be blown over. Where is our foundation? What are we building on? God's telling Habakkuk, the Chaldeans, these wicked people that are coming to defeat you, they worship gods that they created with their own hands. They worship gods that they control and that basically tell them what they want to hear. They build them with their own hands. And what does God think about idols like that? Well, he's going to tell Habakkuk. Listen to verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, Arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside of it. God says, Woe! Woe! As we saw last week, woe's a warning. It, it's from the person who's actually in charge to the people who think they're in charge. And God says, woe, if you say to a piece of wood, hey, hey, wake up, I, I need to ask you some advice for my life. Woe, if you say to a statue carved from stone, teach me, I, I need some wisdom. One pastor said this, the whole Babylonian empire, the Chaldeans, was trusting in speechless, immobile non-entities that had been made by Bob the Builder, Clive the Carver, and Mick the Metalworker. Listen, the most ignorant, most mentally deranged person on this planet is wiser and more powerful than an idol. Why? Because idols are dead. They're not real. We can dress them up in a lot of ways. We can put a lot of stories around them to make people believe they really are a lucky charm, but they are not real. And to follow after them is rebellion against what you have create, been created to do, and that is to worship and enjoy God forever. That's inside of you. Paul said, 
the rebellion like that goes something like this in Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That, that's a dangerous exchange. That's a fatal exchange. Without Christ, our hearts are so sinful, we will ignore or reject the reality of God. But we know we're part of something bigger than ourselves. So what we'll do if we reject the reality of God is we'll find a person or a place or a possession or a perspective or a philosophy or something else or someone else and we will start to worship that person or that thing. We'll put all of our time and our energy, our free time into whatever that is. That's why it's so dangerous to trust in ourselves. It's so dangerous to trust in our possessions because we will end up making gods. We'll make gods. We'll make idols. And we won't even know we're doing it. We won't even realize it. We create things and attitudes, philosophies, opinions, even religious rules. We create those things. We train ourselves by those things. And ultimately, we teach ourselves to trust in those things more then we trust in God, and God says, woe. Woe. Woe to anyone who lives that way. Woe to anyone who thinks that way. Now, let's go back to Habakkuk just for a moment. Remember, here's this scene. So a wicked nation is coming to take over. Some wicked people are coming to take over. The Chaldeans were getting ready to start screaming at the people of the nation. Hey, you know what? Your God can't protect you. You know what? Your God, he's a failure. You know what? Your God, he can't stop us from taking you over. You know what we're going to do? We're going to shut your churches down. And the ones we don't shut down, we're going to burn them down. Because you know what? Our gods reign and your God does not reign. That's what they were going to start saying. And you know what? It was going to look like they were right. <laughs> Their lucky charm words were going to look right. It was going to seem believable. Why? Because they were going to conquer and they were going to win, and they were going to take over. So all of it seemed kind of real. And maybe God's people were like, God, what are you doing? God, why are you letting this happen? What's happening here? You ever had moments like that? Moments when you look around and you say, God, why are you letting this happen? Well, what should we do when we have moments like that? God's going to tell Habakkuk, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's like a courtroom scene. Bailiff stands up. Hear ye, hear ye. All rise. Presiding is the holy, anointed, true God of the universe. And God bangs the gavel whole room fills with silence. Why? Because he is God and there is no other. There's no other God. God is alive and well. God is alive and well. He was and is and is to come. He is holy, holy, holy. You want some foolishness in your life? You trust yourself. 
You want some foolishness in your life? You trust your idols. Do you want some majesty in your life? Do you want some hope in your life? Do you want some confidence in your life? Then bow your heart to the God of Israel. Bow your heart to the one true God who is holy, holy, holy. There is none besides Him. What a gracious thing that God is doing for Habakkuk, right? He's he's reminding Habakkuk of this thing that's going to happen. I mean, really think about this. This thing is going to happen. Like it's going to happen. It's not a prediction. It's a guaranteed promise. And what is that thing that's going to happen? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everyone is going to bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody. The wicked, the sinful, the selfish, the prideful, the evil, the Democrats and Republicans, the Libertarians, the Red Party, the Blue Party, the Green Party, the Pink Party, the the Rainbow Party, the people who worship idols and the people who worship God. Everybody is going to bow to Jesus Christ. This is a moment that is already set in stone in history. And that's what God reminds Habakkuk. He says, Habakkuk, I know you have this news, this news that that things are getting ready to get really bad and that things aren't going to suddenly magically get better in your nation, but, but hey, remember this promised truth, this guarantee. Because Habakkuk, he's got to be thinking, man, I, I love that God. Sounds really good. Could we do that now? That'd be really nice. Could we just go ahead and do that now? The whole everybody bow down. That would really be helpful. You ever had a day like that? Have you had some days like that in the last few weeks where you went, man, God, there's so much going wrong in our nation right now. It'd be really good if you just went ahead and had everybody just bow down to you now. That'd be great. But guess what? He hasn't. So what do we do? Well, God already told it back in verse 4. He said the righteous in 2020, in 2019, in 2021, in 2077, the righteous will live by faith. By faith. By faith. God's alive. God sent his only son to satisfy the penalty of my sin and your sin. And we should believe that Jesus is coming again because he promised to come again. And why should we believe it? Because of his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. We should believe he's coming back. We should trust in the truth that he's coming back. And we should wait. See, we live by faith, not blind, stupid faith. Not faith in a religion or a denomination or an institution or even a nation. We live by faith in Jesus. We live by faith in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the return of Jesus. We live by faith in things that are real. We live by faith in a God that's alive. We live by faith in a risen Savior. And because of that faith, we always have hope. Always have hope. Before Jesus left this world, he said something some parting words to his closest friends. And what were they? 
He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. I came across an article once. It was titled, Four Words That Change Everything. Four words that change everything. And it laid out a very interesting little outline that I want to share with you. See if you can find yourself in any of this. To the single mom working two jobs and still coming up short every month, Jesus says, I am with you. To the one filled with anxiety and worry in this moment right now, Jesus says, I am with you. To the unemployed, to the person that has no idea what their purpose or passion in life is, to the insecure and unsure walking through life desperate for acceptance, Jesus says, I am with you. To the fake, to the phony, that has everyone believing that their life is more together than it really is, Jesus said, I am with you. To the depressed, to the downhearted, to the person that feels there is no light at the end of the tunnel, Jesus says, I am with you. To the married person that wonders how their marriage drifted to such a lonely and painful place, Jesus says, I am with you. And I would add, to the single person that thinks they're never going to find the right person, Jesus says, I am with you. To the angry, to the resentful that have been rocked by hardship and hurt, to the abused, the broken, the isolated, the lonely, Jesus says, I am with you. The baby in the manger. Emmanuel, God with us, grew up to say four words that change everything. I'm with you. And he says, I'm with you always. No politician, no pastor, no parent, no person can promise you that. No idol can promise you that. But Emmanuel can, and he has, and he will continue with the hope of the gospel to say to you, I am with you. So come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ. Christ.